most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome, Vincent. Vincent Deluar. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Happy to be here. You know why? Yeah, a little, little awesome. bit of technical technical difficulties. Uh, I'm going to do it over the phone, but I think it's looking good. You're looking sharp. Your tie's almost done. That's awesome. Um, so for everybody, anybody who doesn't know, Vince is uh, Director of Global Macro Strategy at Stonex. He's been with us before. He's got a pretty fantastic thesis that's been on point for the last couple of years. And if you haven't uh, heard what that was um, in full, you can listen to our previous website uh, uh, podcast. Uh, before we do begin, though, Mike, why don't you give us the uh, the old disclaimer? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, you know, none of this is advice. Three guys on a, a YouTube channel is not where you want to get advice from. So we're going to have a nice wide-ranging conversation about all kinds of stuff and be unbound by providing any advice to anyone at any time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Vince, uh, I actually wanted to start with the narrative I'm hearing from most of the allocators that I'm speaking to right now and get your reaction and then kind of pull some strings from there. The narrative I'm hearing from most uh, participants is that it's done. Uh, We've kind of hit peak inflation. We've seen the CPI numbers go down. This is basically a Fed pivot if it's not already happening. Um, a pause will lead to a, a liquidity event that will rise markets and everything will be 
fine again. Broadly speaking, you know, there's a few outliers, but but broadly speaking, people are starting to feel relief and that this kind of inflationary period is over, that in fact, there's some words about like, and they're actually going to nail this soft landing. Um, so I just, I'd be curious to, to hear where you're at right now in your thesis and uh, maybe do a quick revamp of where you were at in terms of the inflation narrative in the last few years, how that has changed. Yeah, I think it's always good to start with, with where people have been because they have dependency in everything, including in strategy forecast. Uh, uh, so my, my bias, and I'll gladly admit it, is inflation. Uh, I've been writing about the rise of structural inflation since even before COVID. I actually think even without COVID, we wouldn't be at eight, we'd probably be at four, four percent inflation. I think we have a structural wave of inflation because of demography, uh, because of uh, China, because of the rising cost of capital, uh, because of a, a crunch in the labor supply globally. Um, so that's where I've been for a long time. I think, you know, COVID, at the beginning, hurt my thesis because it was massive deflationary for commodity prices, and then eventually the market got it right. But the market didn't actually know that. The inflation just showed up in the data, uh, and, and the market was in disbelief. You know, we had the whole transitory fiasco, the, oh, it's the supply chain, it's Russia, it's produce car, it's number price. I mean, every month was a new excuse. Uh, and then we got to that peak in inflation, about 9.1% in uh, June, and um, I agree as far as now as you told me, I think 9%, 9.1 was indeed the, the high print, uh, AI high print. I mean, I, there's a chance I think in the next decade that we, we revisit this, kind of like in the 70s when you had the peak for the first old shock and then the real peak was, was not until the, the Iranian revolution 1979. But yeah, for now, I, I kind of agree with the narrative. going to fall. It's really mostly the fact that these phones, used cars are going to deflate. Uh, you see some things are rolling over, rents, construction. So there, there is, you know, and again, it was never going to be a straight line up from, from my perspective. So uh, to me, the more interesting question is not so much where the next month's print is going to print, but where did it settle? Does it settle back to two or does it settle back to four or five? And my answer is, yeah, it's got to settle to four or five, and that it's actually a good thing. And that the Fed, basically what the Fed is trying to do is to show that it tried, you know? And and now gives them a great opportunity because the next four months, just because the basic expectation is going to fall, it's going to look like they've done what they said would do. Um, at the same time, the Fed funds rate is going to rise up, you know, another 175 point basis points. So we'll have this kind of Goldilocks moment where the Fed funds rate may be slightly above CPI, which will match the definition that Powell had given himself for success, positive rates. And then we can just forget about it. I think what's going to happen is the Fed is going to declare victory. Uh, they're very anxious to erase from people's memory the mistake of 2021. They want to show, you know, they they gave it uh, they gave it their shot. Um, and then once we are in that world, the surprise will be that inflation is not falling much below 4.5. Uh, the same thing happened in the 70s, right? The Fed cut, inflation fell down from 10, but it stopped at 4.5. But I think the real Fed people is not going to be the cut rate because demand is too weak, which is the consensus, right? I mean, we get all these 
tweet at people, you know, uh, you know, fast forwarding. If you if you if you if you advance this this series by twelve months, and then and then it falls, and then you put the CPI next to it and it falls, and you have all these. It's almost a, a passion. People want the economy to fall in depression. Oh, he's tightening into a depression. Uh, he's making the biggest policy mistake. All of that. I don't think that's going to happen. And we'll be surprised with the resilience of the economy as we have in the past nine, in the past twelve months. The economy. If you look at the past twelve BLS numbers, uh, non-farm payroll, we beat ten out of the past twelve. So the consensus is const consistently underestimating the strength of the economy, and I think that continues to be the case in 2023. And we realize, hey guys, what's wrong? You know what? Three, four percent inflation, labor market's tight, people are getting wage increases. Uh, we have a reasonable cost of capital. We're going to learn to live with it, and we will be happy with it. And I think that is. That is my originally original idea. I would say my inflation case is that I see inflation as the solution. I see it as a good thing. Nature is healing. Inflation is the economy trying to rebalance itself from what was a dead end. The period of consistently low inflation, uh, lower rates, excessive debt, bubble building. A decade of inflation is the least painful way to rebalance the economy, and I think eventually power will accept that. Um, you see that already. I mean, I cannot count the number of OPEs that I've seen in recent days about smart economies telling, you know, it started with Blanchard, Olivier Blanchard, former head of the IMF. Uh, he had a paper at the Peterson Institute, uh, 25 years of excessively tight monetary policy, saying that, you know, 2% was never the right target. Let, let's build some buffering, 3 4%. Then Krugman picked the argument, then Stiglitz. And these are all guys that are very political, right? I mean, if you see them turn, it's because something in the wind is turning. Uh, so I think the real fat people will be to accept the high inflation. Rate. So can, can I pull on that a little bit? Um, high inflation is good to rebalance the economy. What you're saying is to rebalance it from high debt levels, as in debt, you can you can uh, reduce debt with austerity, you can reduce debt with uh, growth, you can reduce debt with inflation. And you're saying that growth probably not there right now, given what's going on in the world and the global economy. Austerity was tried and failed in Europe, maybe they don't want to do that. So the only thing really left is inflation. Well, you, you can default as well. High. Of course, yes, yeah. you can default and restructure. So so is that why it's good out of all the options, out of all the bad options, that's the least bad and the one that they're likely to land on? Yeah, so there's um, the Ray Dalio term, the beautiful dead averaging argument, right? Which is that the free options you mentioned. And, you know, I think most people understand that and, and I think we agree with that. Uh, yeah, growth, we cannot do anything about it. Uh, I mean, we can hope for a productivity miracle. I mean, I think we do a lot of that with, uh, you know, DoorDash and Zoom and, you know, all the disruptors. <laughs> well, we saw that uh, that didn't work out. Um, so, anyway, growth is not something that's under Jay Powell's control. Um, then, yeah, we could do austerity and, and, and recession, but it seems to me that the cost of this is insane. I mean, it's, 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 it's a tax benefit analysis at the end of the day. Surely we could get back to 2%. I mean, you know, it could be like, Chapel can be like Volcker and hike to 10%. And then we'll get a 10% unemployment rate, we'll get the dollar index at 200, uh, we'll get a default across the emerging worlds, we'll get a global supply crunch, all that for what? 
you know, for for going to the number you made up in the first place. Like two percent is, you know, it's just as arbitrary as three or four. Uh, so I think at the end, the cooler heads will prevail, and and agree that, you know, some inflation. The worry of inflation is if you get to eight nine, because then you get your like last summer was scary, right? Because if it keeps accelerating, you get to nine percent. Then you get inflation expectation channel to kick in, and then you really lose control. But in a way, I would think Xi Jinping has saved the Fed. Like by having the lockdowns in China, we deflated the commodity prices. Uh, that was happening as the as the, the supply chain was were easing, the used cars. So there is this, this lucky alignment of the star that that would get make it seem like it's under control. And that's all that we care about. You know, I don't think invest like um, households. You know, they don't form their expectations. Two to five percent is fine, uh, and that, that's where we want to be. Uh, the other part about why I think inflation is good is a, it's kind of a generational aspect, uh, which, which to me is the, 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 the crux, the issue that we have fundamentally across the Western world is a generational issue. We had this historically large boomer generation that you know had no parents. Uh, because they were during the war and then the very few kids and concentrated in abnormal effects in the country. And they were very lucky because when they accumulated this wealth, when they started forming households, you know, interest rates were 20%, you can buy households very cheap, stocks were very cheap, bonds were very cheap. And they've basically been riding this bull market in stocks, in bonds, in houses. And now they sit on all these extraordinarily richly valued assets and they'll have to pass, pass them down. In the next 10 years, assets need to move from boomers to Millennial and Gen Zers, and the problem is the millennial and Gen Zers are not earning enough to buy these assets at the valuation that these assets currently have. So that's why we have the highest proportion of young adults living with their parents. It's a Great Depression. Uh, it, you know, it, it's not because they want to be playing video games in man's basement. It's because they cannot afford a home. Um, they cannot afford stocks either. If you look at a chart of the S&P 500 divided by minimum wage, it gives you an idea of how long you have to work to buy a share in the S&P 500. When the boomers came of age, that was four days. Now that's four months. So we need the market to clear. And in order for the market to clear, we need asset prices to go down and nominal wages to go up. And inflation does that. Again, inflation is the solution and it will rebalance the economy in a way that's ultimately beneficial. Um, and it, again, think about, there's no alternative. The alternative is Europe, where you know we keep uh, having lower, lower growth, because we have two, the growth is too low, the debt becomes unsustainable. How do we solve that? We cut rates so we can take more debt to create the illusion of growth. And then we have to cut rates again and what? we get to negative rates. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a natality that collapses, household formation that collapses, demand that collapses, and it's kind of a, a deflationary do-loop. So in a way, inflation is a deus ex machina that will allow us to go back to a proper sustainable growth where we're no longer building, you know, bubble on top of bubble, which seems a good description of the past 20 years, but actual uh, fundamentally driven growth uh, with reasonable valuation uh, and, and rates that allow people to build assets over time instead of investing in, in Ponzi scheme and cryptocurrency. So it sounds to me like you are, that sounds very much like a soft landing in you know, soft landing with a, with a higher inflation target yeah. than what they're claiming they're going to do. But let's talk a little bit about why you don't ascribe to the fears that many others have pointed out that this tightening cycle has been 
the fastest and most aggressive tightening cycle in history that it, 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 there's a lag between when you start tightening and when you start seeing it in the real economy, right? So the counter argument is that the economy is growing, that the, um, uh, you know, that labor uh, uh, costs are resilient, that it's, it's, we're going to get through this without much issues. But the lag is eight to 18, eight to, to 18 months before we actually see oh. the effects of tightening. And, and people like Mike Green, even Dan Jensen from Bridgewater, Rose, uh, Ro- Rosenberg and, and um, what's his name, Raul Pal are all thinking they've, they've actually killed the economy. We're just not seeing it yet. And we're going to be in negative inflation and dis- deflation uh, after this whole thing goes through. So what are they getting wrong? that doesn't jive with your current thesis? I, I think they're overestimating the, the, the wealth effect uh, and underestimating fiscal. And I think in a way that that's kind of the, the product of the past four years we've been in the monetary dominance world where you know it's a monetary policy dictates everything. Uh, and um, I just find monetary policy to be uh, not the best instrument for, uh, for the things that the Fed wants to achieve. Like for, for 10 years, for example, we use monetary policy to inflate and the wealth effect, you know, give, give more money to rich people and actually it will trickle down. Um, I guess it worked, you know, 12 years after the fact. <laughs> uh, but we had to, to push a lot of liquidity in the system for very weak results. So doing the opposite, removing liquidity and, and deflating asset price bubble in order to target the price level, I think is going to be equally ineffective, especially since there is a, a mismatch between the, to me, the pain in the economy, the, the, the reason we have a high inflation, I mean, well, there's a lot, but right now it's mostly labor market, and especially uh, low-end blue-collar workers. Uh, this is where you see the biggest ratio of job openings to job seekers. Uh, this is where, where you see the fastest wage increases. Uh, and, um, you know, you can fire as many product managers at Twitter that were doing nothing anyway. That's, you know, they're not going to pick up fruits in the Central Valley in California or uh, bus table in, uh, in restaurants or work in hotels. Uh, the you know Mark Zuckerberg's net worth dropped by seventy five percent this year. His consumption has not. So we can you know if if it's a game of whack a mole, we're hitting the wrong mole, um, and um, we'll be surprised by the uh, the fact that 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 the labor market is going to remain tight for for the one. And these are these are workers that spend a hundred percent of the paycheck. Uh, so as long as they keep getting these pay increases, uh, we'll, by the way, another thing we're going to be getting next year is going to be cost of living adjustment of 8.7%. Everyone who gets social security in the U.S., it's about 30% of the workforce is going to get an 8.7% raise. Uh, so it's not going to cool down as much. And at the same time, again, I maintain that fiscal policy is more important than monetary policy. And we will see, uh, in, in Europe, we are seeing uh, basically governments pay for the war, the, the energy shock. We are seeing uh, military budgets going through the roof. Uh, we will see fiscal impulse out of Europe. We might see some in China. I think the economy does not recover on its own when they reopen. 
they have the room, they will they will see it again. And in the US, we'll see it just because you know rising deficits uh, just because of demography. So again, I think we're shifting from an era of monetary dominance to fiscal dominance, and that in itself is inflationary. How does how does in in a longer term sense, when we're talking decades at a time, how do you think the uh, the ability to automate a lot of the the jobs that are in this domain automate them away? How does that potentially offer the opportunity for you know really global growth with without the labor input, if you will, or just thoughts on automation generally and its impact over the longer time frame that you're talking about in this sort of inflationary rebalancing and and bringing sort of labor more uh, rewarding labor more than it's been rewarded in the last couple of decades and and how might that play out? I, I mean, I can see a major move towards automation being a, a quite an effective force of growth potentially and a reduction in the uh, you know sort of the burden on labor but what are your thoughts yeah i think it's it's the hope um i mean certainly going to play out i i think over the next four years to me it's a bit of a timing mismatch because you, you need the robots now and then and you get them uh hopefully in 10 years i would also point to the fact that um, kind of the simplest jobs are very hard to automate, like a waiter. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, replicating the way a human walks, or uh, uh, it's not that easy. Like, you can automate uh, manufacturing, we've done a lot of that. I think we'll see automation in, in kind of mid level, you know, with, with AI, you do like accounting, or uh, but but where we are, uh. Again, to me, the shortages are, uh, re well, retail, I guess you could do a little bit, uh, hospitality, services. Uh, it's going to be harder uh, to automate these positions. And, and I would also say that um, there is a, a social element, uh, a hierarchical element to work that we, you know, we want to be serviced by other people. <laughs> It's kind of a, um, so I think we'll find, uh, yes, there will be some displacement, displacement of, of workers because of automation, but other parts of the economy will emerge to absorb these new workers. One of the, uh, uh, one of the, my big thesis on my inflationary uh, case is the rise of the gig economy, uh, that we are, uh, you know, and that's the part that the Fed has missed because they don't retract it. But you, you know, you ask uh, your average teenager what he wants to do. He doesn't want to be a firefighter or a, a, an astronaut. He wants to be a YouTube influencer or an Instagram celebrity. Uh, so we are creating all these kind of parallel economy uh, where people will provide service to each other, uh, and that also creates a um, a demand for the workers that will eventually be displaced by automation. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, again, why we are seeing this steady wage growth at the bottom of the pyramid is because a lot of the workers now have the opportunity. Uh, the waiters that got fired after COVID, you know, they moved on. They became Uber drivers, DoorDash delivery. They're good looking. They become OnlyFans model. Uh, they become... Uh, uh, so, and this is all not captured in... in the BLS data, uh, and it also 
until the gap between these two closes down, the gap between the, the real economy and the gig economy closes down, we have a vertical physics curve. Uh, you can increase wages, but the supply of labor doesn't come in. Um, and I think we'll just see more of that going forward as the economy moves uh, more kind of a flexible, on-demand, gig-based, uh, as opposed to the old economy of nine-to-five jobs in big corporations. Interesting. I've heard you talk about the um, sort of difference of the, the sort of conditions of this current potential recession that might hit um, with respect to the amount of wealth that people are holding sort of in their in their bank accounts and how that's never happened before. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that or share that with with the folks that are, are listening to this um, particular podcast as well, because I think it's it's got some very interesting insights to it that that are largely unappreciated. Yeah, so you can check that. I mean, some you know, some we said they report uh, uh, cash deposits in, in checking accounts in the U.S. It's an insane theory. They really like if you cool, they just. I mean, the thing up by like four hundred percent since COVID and barely normalizing. Uh, even for the lowest decide, you still have three times as much cash in the in the checking account than you had uh, pre-COVID. And, and to me, that. You know, that, that tells me that demand is going to be resilient. Uh, people don't like to, to pay five, 4 or $5 gas and prices are crazy, but as long as there's money in the checking account, that money going to be spent. Uh, so I, I think one of the issues with the whole, um, you know, economic doom scenario, or oh, the Fed is going to tighten and, and everything's going to fall, is people are rushing, are rushing to the end of the movie and, and they may be right. I mean, at some point, surely uh, they will be right. But you have to go for the middle part. Uh, so first, people need to draw down the money that they have in, in, in the checking account. Then they'll put it on the credit card. Uh, then uh, they will have trouble paying the credit card debt. And then finally, they'll default. And then you'll see. But I mean, at the current pace, it's going to take more than two years for uh, cash balances to normalize. So we can still live on that for a while. Um, higher rates are going to take a bite for sure, but you know most of the debt that I was selling in the U.S. was issued when rates were very low. And you only, let's say your average duration is nine years, you only roll out 10% of your debt every year. So it's going to take some time before the effect of this tightening is felt. Uh, we had a lot of deleveraging following COVID. So again, I think the... the and on top of that, we have this, this gig economy, which I think is something that people are missing. And it is a way that workers are adjusting to higher prices. Is Instead of cutting consumption, they take a gig. And that, that, that came out in the latest LinkedIn data. Monster survey showed that the number of people working gigs exploded in recent uh, months. Also, I think that's one of the reasons for discrepancy between the, uh, in the last uh, non-farm payroll number, you have different between the establishment survey and the household survey. And, and the difference was attributed to people working two jobs. Uh, so again, that is a big difference between now and 08. 08, you lost your job, that was it. You defaulted on your home payment and you got that deflationary spiral. But here, uh, if high inflation means that you can, you're going to work a second job, that means your consumption is going to be more resilient. And, and that, that 
cash in those accounts, I guess, is sort of a persistent inflationary impulse as well, I'm assuming, right? Because you can continue to spend even though there's a contraction. Is there a point where the consumer sort starts to realize there's there's some economic trouble and starts to retrench a little bit and even though they have cash starts to spend less or is it do you view it is they they just will roll through that spending then load up their credit card and hope that that things work out that they can continue their current lifestyle at whatever this inflationary impulse is how, how do you view that is that or do i have that right yeah and they were germans yeah you know but they're american you know this is the american <laughs> way maybe put it in the credit card and hope for good time that that is but uh, I, and I say it with love, okay? Uh, I'm a European. I'm, I'm naturally pessimistic, and then and I save eighty uh, percent of my income. And what if and what that? But I, I love that about the American spirit, the endurance, the resilience. You know, like that, that is oh, I'll make you know every American. You know, you ask them about their, you know, yeah, this year was bad, but next year is gonna be so much better. And and you know what? I think that's one reason why uh, you know the U.S. is more resilient uh, and more d- dynamic is because people have the some would argue irrational faith that things are going to turn all right for them. And yeah. Uh, and failing's okay. Going bankrupt is okay in the U S yeah. you just start again. I mean, there's no stigma to it socially and the labor force is extremely adaptive due to the, the lack of support in the labor laws. You know, you can just lay people off and then rehire them. And that ability to really adapt to the economic conditions and push that to the the end worker, that labor force takes that risk. It does allow for business or, or the, the, the business side of it to take less of that risk. Um, so I do think that that's, a, that's an adaptive feature that is unique to the United States of America as well. Well, so can I, can I ask you, I, I go back and I, I want to ask you about the, the, the uh, risk of recession. Right. So I, I he, what I'm hearing is that the end game here is 4% inflation. Everybody's going to be fine. It's going to be good. We're going to reduce debt. We're going to rebalance the economy. But let's talk about the order of events here. Are you are you calling for that to happen within the next eight to, to 16 months and be be done? Or are we going to go through some cycles here? I mean, is, is there a point where the Fed stops uh, doing tightening too soon and we get a bit more inflation and then they have to go back and tighten some more before we get to this ultimate 4% level? Or are, is it a one and done thing and soft landing is in where it involves your uncle? Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. It's going to be an iterative process. We're going to you know, try and, and test and eventually we'll, we'll settle to that level. Um, I think um, if I were to make a guess in terms of, of monetary policy, so what Paul has said is, you know, don't worry too much about 75 or 50, whatever. It's the, it's, it's the destination, not the journey, right? Uh, um, which is correct. Um, you know, you, I think Paul now can, can take a little bit of a, a step back, right? It, it's deflating. It, 75 is probably overkilling it. He can, he can take his time. Um, I do think he wants to go to five. Um, and then uh, I think what we could see is a divergence between the two tools that the Fed has. There's the rates and there's the balance sheet. And so far, we've used them mostly in the same direction, right? We've, we've done QT, 
and, and rate hikes at about the same time. And, uh, and there's no reason for that. Uh, so that's the degree of freedom that the Fed had that they didn't have before. If you want to ease, maybe you don't cut rates. Maybe you uh, allow for the balance sheet to roll back, or at least you stop shrinking it. Um, so I think the Fed will use the, the balance sheet as the variable of adjustment, also because that is the, um, you know, that is the risk that something breaks, right? I, I'm more concerned. I'm more concerned about liquidity, uh, especially in the treasury market, or something weird happening, like what happened with Ripple three years ago, or what happened to Bank of England. Like, we don't really know what we're doing here. Okay, we're just taking a hundred billion out of the balance sheet, and then touch on wood, hope it goes fine. Uh, but there is no template for that. So I think it'd be a lot easier, also from a policy standpoint, to you just announce a new uh, TALF, uh, PTTT, uh, PS Popo, whatever, you know, like uh, some technical, oh no, we're not easing. We are providing emergency liquidity in order to save the pension of the hardworking man of America. That's, you know, politically, that's a very, very easy. So I think that's the, uh, yeah, that's the path is, is uh, um, we get to five, but instead of having the three rate cuts that the market expects by the end of 2023, what we do have is if the economy slows, which is not necessarily my case, but or if there is a, an accident in trade markets, then uh, we see the Fed walk back uh, on QT, maybe do some emergency equity injections. And, and you know, I think that's, that's not a bad way, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, we have this kind of door shortage. I'm sure you, you know, you've heard people talk about that EIS report. Uh, you know, we're playing with liquidity, you're playing with fire. Uh, and, and the consequences of uh, a global liquidity crisis are a lot worse than, yeah, high rates, okay, some leverage real estate developer is going to go bust. Some stupid unicorn that had uh, absurd valuation is going to fall. All these are good things, you know, crypto bubbles. I mean, these are things that the Fed wants to see. So I would keep the rates higher and then adjust with, with the balance sheet. Dude, what about the, I mean, so, so we've got a political aspect of this too, because fiscal policy driven by governments in power are going to try to direct funds into the economy at certain specific groups. And then the monetary policy is going to have to reflect that, I think. Are they not that we're going to have some tension here between uh, two different objective functions a little bit, or or do you think we're how do you how do you perceive that? I mean, I'd go back to that. Um, Sergeant was the name of the guy. Bank of Minneapolis, uh, 1980 paper on fiscal versus monetary dominance. Uh, it's a great paper. Uh, basically argues that you have two sorts of regime. Uh, one is the regime where the central bank is the constraint and tells the government, you know, that basically the European world, right, where the ECB says, hey, you, you know, you got to cut spending or I, I, sh I shut down the ATM, what, what we told the Greeks or, or the, uh, the Cypriots. Uh, so that's extreme monetary dominance. Uh, and then the other regime is, is fiscal dominance, which what, what was the U.S. had after World War II, uh, I'm going to yield of control and, you know, whatever the private sector cannot absorb in my debt, the central bank is going to absorb. I, I think we are moving to fiscal dominance. So I, I, the answer to your question is I think the Fed or central banks are going to do what the government tells them to do uh, rather than the opposite. 
And wasn't there a leak around that time that he said, you know, the federal bank is uh, independent, uh, but not independent of their actions? That so they're re- they're always reacting ultimately to what this what the politicians end up doing. Correct, correct, correct. That's the second part of the paper where he yeah. shows that even if even if they try, it doesn't work. Which which may be where we are today, where you know we have the the attempt of monetary policy to kind of normalize and then. Uh, now, I think a, a big gap here is the fact that we're com- coming into elections for the biggest economy in the world and whether fiscal spending is going to be on point for, for if anything, if there is a gap in the economy. Not, uh, do you see a real fiscal spending in the U.S. for the next two years? I don't. Um, I mean, a lot of the fiscal spending is on autopilot, right? I mean, Social Security. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, the quick, quick answer is I don't see, like, because we have divided government, right? So, uh, but it works both ways, right? That also means you will not see consolidation either. You just see nothing, right? You just see them bicker and, and argue. I mean, t- taking a kind of longer perspective, it seems to me that the, uh, the there is no Tea Party anymore. There is no uh, consistent, there is no blue dogs. There is no no one is really funding austerity the way it was after 2010. So my case is almost independent of, of politics. Uh, uh, everybody, everybody believes in MMT now. Um, and even, even those who don't have to do it. And like you look at Europe, again, I go back to the, I mean, what the German government does is, is insane. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they triple the military budget. They will, uh, uh, you know, absorb the cost of, uh, uh, of higher energy prices. So, uh, yeah, the government is picking up the tap one way or the other. Okay, so let's back to what the Fed's goal is right now, which I think you mentioned that it is to to ease off the inflation in the labor market, right? Like that's ultimately what they're trying to get down. I think, what is it, at 5 6% right now? Um, I mean, with the strength of the economy, like you said, the gig economy, it's going to be a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. And I, I got to say, like, I, when you look at what the Fed has done, central banks have done versus their indicators and versus the lag, there's always seems to be behind the curve. They always seem to be not getting the timing quite right. And from, from what I've read, the, the impact of the labor. So you impact the economy, you impact growth. From the moment you start tightening between nine and 18 months, but it takes a lot longer to impact labor. And the question is whether they're going to get their ducks in line, understand the lag and act accordingly. Um, Do you think that they're going to really stop um, tightening until they see that labor uh, number go down to 4%? I mean... Okay, this is just me speculating here. Sure. Okay, so uh, I have no... No, 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 it's just no between us girls, yeah. and, and Other than okay. my, my gut feeling. Your intuition about the Fed my, and what okay, they're capable of doing. my intuition. Yeah, yeah. My intuition is that they know what they really want. They don't want to kill the labor market. Why would you, right? I mean, for... For four years, we had all these wealth concentration, inequalities, wage gap between, you know, minorities and non-minorities, uh, young generation. Not. All of this is, is, is flipped now. 
wages are growing faster for non-white and white, and uneducated and educated, hourly and non-hourly, job switching and job stayers. Uh, why would you want to kill that? You know, so I think what they really want to do, and I think Jay Powell is doing a fine job at this, is, you know, kind of like I have with my four-year-old. Oh, if, if you do this, I will unleash my anger on you and you won't have the iPhone for a million years. And uh, uh, But really, I don't mean this. Uh, so they want to show that they tried. Uh, they want to erase the perception of the historical mistake of 2021 of keeping too much accommodation. So they have to talk stern. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, Jay Powell is a smart guy. I have a lot more confidence in Jay Powell than I did Bernanke and Yan because, you know, he actually ran businesses. And, you know, he was smart enough to, like, when he saw that the model stopped working, last, he's like, okay, forget about the model. Uh, and I don't think you raise this kind of position by being an ideologue. Uh, so he'll, he'll know where to go. Uh, and I go back to the, all these op-eds recently of smart economists telling you, uh, you know, that 2%, you know, maybe, uh, like, so I think it's going to stop before he breaks down the labor market. Also because I think the labor market is, is a lot more resilient and a lot more tight. So... You know, I mean, but, but isn't the labor today. market isn't the labor market staying strong? What leads to infl the decoupling of inflation expectations? I mean, we certainly feel it here in our business, right? You you see employees asking for a bigger wage, five six percent, and then the service providers giving us a raise in, in cost of ten twelve percent, right? Getting ahead, it, it giving us an even bigger inflationary cost, to in anticipation that employees are going to ask for more every single year. Right. So it's I think the labor market and inflation expectations decoupling is the fear here from the Fed. And the way that they squash that is through squashing the labor market growth of inflation. So I think that's why they'd want to, to crush the labor market. Uh, I don't think you can have a strong inflationary labor market and then have no inflation expectation decoupling. I just don't see it. I think they've seen in history that, they, that the way to do it is to really get back put that one down and make sure that we get to a more reasonable two to 4%. Anyway, again, we're both speculating here. Well, right? what about, but, what about margin? What, what I think, I think you're, you're, you're skipping. So, okay. okay. If we step back, the problem we have is a supply side problem. Uh, you know, we, we underinvested. We have uh, China that's no longer sending us cheap stuff that it used to Russian commodity output. We can't get anymore. Or at least not as cheap as we can. So some, something's got to give, right? And the question is, which who's gonna get? Uh, and um, you know, you have three ways you can solve this, excluding default, because I, you know, that, that's not. Uh, one way is broad, broad inflation; you reset the price level. One way is uh, you have workers eat it uh, with a recession, and then the third way is uh, margins. You just accept that, hey, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna take it from the margins, and you know that. that we had four years of super profits. We had, uh, after COVID, we, we gave handouts to everybody. Everybody made out like pigs. So maybe we accept that, uh, you know, the, this secular increase in profit margin is, is over and, and, and we have a, a fairer, more balanced split in, in the, in, in the uh, how we split economic growth between workers and capital owners. 
Do, do you think that the current sort of expected valuations on the S&P and stocks, if you will, reflect that kind of thinking, though? I, I, I don't really see that. I see, you know, the, the markets looking at a very modest earnings recession, contracting margins, pricing that in forward versus what I think you're alluding to or saying is that's going to be a little bit more significant than maybe market expectations so that, you know, there, there's the mispricing or there's a mispricing. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if you look at EPS expectation, I think it's 230 on the S&P 500 EPS, so up 10% over last year. Uh, and that's happening even though the top line is basically not growing. So what analysts are telling you right now, we have the top line going at 10% earnings at zero. And next year, it's the other way, right? Your top line is going to be at zero and your EPA is going to be at 10%. Um, so what the market is telling is, you're right, it's, is that we'll see margins expand next year. I, I find that hard to believe. I mean, you know, labor costs a lot more, uh, commodity, uh, energy costs a lot more, uh, capital costs a lot more. So I really don't see where you squeeze in that, that margin expansion. I think in a way, the margin expansion we've seen this past year is a bit illusory. It's the inflation illusion. You know, when, when Keynes talks about it, it's like you, the inflation, like uh, every at the beginning, oh, I'm richer. Yeah, let me spend. And then all the, everybody, whoa, whoa, I'm richer. Let me spend this one. And then you realize, oh, but actually everybody else is doing it. <laughs> so I'm more, you know, that was 2021. And, you know, you have good accounting reasons for that, right? I mean, you value, you know, if you have fast inflation, your inventories that you sell, are valued at the old price, so your your, your earnings get boosted, or, or the, the, the depreciation expense, you use the old price, but then when you have to replace the machine, it costs less as much, but your depreciation expense still carries the uh, uh, the ghost of the low prices. So the first years of inflation, you do see an expansion in margin, but that is, I would argue, a uh, uh, somewhat of an illusion that will dissipate next year, uh, so, yeah, my expectation is that margins are going to compress. Um, and I'm not sure that, that companies are going to be able to make the workers pay for it. Uh, that That's a traditional uh, response, right? Every time we see EPS guidance negative, you see companies, okay, announcing layoff. And you're certainly seeing that in tech because tech is overstaffed. But tech is a small sector of the economy. In the rest, you know, Companies are understaffed. They are still looking for workers, and uh, they will. You know, there's a little, little labor hoarding going on. So I, I think companies, contrary to eight, will not be able to 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 squeeze the workers out of so that they can restore the profit margin. Yeah, and when do, you do, look, you think? Oh, go ahead, Rod. So just quickly, when you look at the the PE expansion and compression during periods of uh, low inflation and high inflation, you see that in periods of high inflation volatility that the like Schiller PE in the 70s, Schiller PE in the 40s and the, two, in the early 20s is much, much lower than when inflation is going down, right? So this, at least all this, this is uncertainty, uncertainty in cash flows. Um, if it, we're going to be at 5%, this is going to be, this is going to vary by industry and there's going to be less willingness to expand a company. So all these things should lead to a, to a multiple compression. And we continue to be really, really high. We continue to see the economy or the stock market outpace the real economy. At which point are we going to see the economy? Like, there's two things here, right? What you're saying is the economy is resilient. That doesn't mean the stock market may be. And at some point, we've had 
10 years, if not 40 years of the stock market outpacing the economy, we might have to see 10 years of the economy outpacing the stock market. Yeah, and I think this 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 brings to uh, to my mind something that that um, we we hear a lot about this this onshoring aspect. Sure. And is that even possible given the circumstances? I, I know it's it's a great theory to say, okay, we're going to onshore. We we need we need these sort of stable, um, uh, uh, resilient supply chains rather than sort of just in time, cheap and cheerful supply chains. But is that even possible given the current labor dynamics. I, I don't know if this is actually a real thing. I hear it a lot. It makes sense to me. At the same time, the realities seem like that's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I would share your, your skepticism. Uh, uh, because again, to me, the problem is, is the uh, we're running out of kind of young, healthy workers that are willing to you know, work hard for low pay uh, because of generational, you know, you have, you know, one Gen Z entering the labor force per every two women which retires. I mean, that's that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, immigration has slowed to a trickle. Uh, we have this kind of uh, 40% of the U.S. population is obese. Uh, we have anxiety. We have uh, opioids. Uh, I think that the quality of, of the U.S. workforce has been degrading for a very long time, and we've been able to hide it with uh, with Mexican workers. We had 12 million Mexican workers come between the, the tequila crisis of 1994 to 2007, uh, and then relying on this global supply chain and, and workers in East Asia. But now that this, you know, it's like when, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. Uh, I, I think that's, that's what we're discovering. And uh, I mean, even if we could reshore everything, it would still be more expensive like uh, there is nothing that will be as as productive as uh, you know a billion chinese workers with a currency working with a deeply undervalued yuan you still have to pay your workers in dollars instead of you know uh, artificially manipulated currency um, and, and and the first step is going to be to invest like uh, before you before you can reshore, you need to build infrastructure, you need to build a factory. So it's almost the same argument as the energy transition, right? You have to spend more in order to save, possibly save later. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And I, I, I mean, it, it makes a good story, but as you say, you'd have to build out all the infrastructure, build out the, the, those supply chains locally, which are gonna be more expensive. And you're faced with a contracting labor force and you're faced with a labor force that in the Gen Z sense values more of this work-life balance. And it is not the workhorse of the boomer or the Xer who does all the extra hours. These get these folks are just saying, hey, it's five o'clock. I'm going home. And whatever excess work needed to be done, that's your problem well, uh, as the, as look, the labor. The, the onshoring is happening. It is going to be more expensive. I just see it as a story of inflation, of this more secular, higher inflation for longer, right? And and also the story that that profit but margins it, are going to collapse. It can't happen though. Like th there's a flaw in the in the argument. It, it can happen. You, you you just don't have the ability to, or there are challenges to it happening. If you're building, if you're building for efficiency, you're right. If you're building for resilience, you might take the extra cost. And this is what, at least what I'm seeing, what I'm reading, is that they are, the companies are onshoring for the sake of, if, of resiliency, that, that global 
economies are ensuring for sake of resiliency and they're willing to take the extra cost of that Gen Z and pay them the right amount. And also it's not that cut and dry. Like there, like in Mexico, you can still right now with the aging population in China and the issues there, it's actually cheaper to ma- manufacture in Mexico now than it is in China. And that's been a trend that's been going on for a few years, right? So it's not it's not clear to me that it that it's not going to happen. It's not doable. Well, I you think. just you just faced hard limits, and and, the, and and hence the inflation, right? You just have to like sure, and the, or, the market has the, to clear. Sure, if or you're the building inability. for efficiency, right? I, I think we for, I think we're saying the same thing. It's it's you can you can want resiliency, but if you can't deliver it, you can't deliver it. You, you can deliver it at a higher price, at a much higher price. There's, Again, if you clear it, if you want that, you're going to have to clear the market and pay higher, higher wages. Right? Middle America wins again. This is this is the possible solution. There are limits. Right? Sure, there will. China will be a player again. It's not going to zero, but in certain industries, you might actually find that you need it, want it for other reasons than efficiencies. Right? And, right. and I think that. Go ahead. No, I, the, what we ultimately saying here is productivity is going to take a hit. Right. I mean, we're moving from a very efficient where we optimize everything. You know, you look at the, uh, you know, the, how you make a pen, right? You get that piece that comes. I mean, it's amazing. So global supply chain is something that, that, that that's truly a wonder, right? Yeah. Or how you make a computer. If you go a car, you break it down. And it's like, well, now we're going to have to to go back to maybe blocks competing with each other. Whatever it is, it is going to be a, a less efficient system. Uh, and productivity. And by the way, productivity is already falling. I and mean, if you look at unit labor costs, they're up by 8% or near 5% higher wages, 5% lower productivity. Uh, and the, the implication to me is, you know, I think one of the problems with the, uh, the kind of consensus view that the economy is going to fall into recession and that inflation will follow. Honestly, on the recession, I add, my view is that it's, you know, it's overblown, but whatever, it could happen. I could very well see. I, I don't know what happens. We've never done so much tightening so quickly. We shrink the balance sheet. Like, you know, maybe Mike Green is right. I mean, he's smarter than me. Uh, so maybe we see, but but the question is, will inflation follow? And the, 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 the assumption behind the view that recession and inflation are linked is that you have constant productivity gain, right? But if our case is right, let's say the, Let's say the economy shrinks by 2%, but productivity falls by 3%. You need 1% more workers to produce that smaller level of output. So your recession doesn't clear the labor market. It doesn't reset wages. And you have an either stagflation or inflationary recession, which to me, that is the bearish scenario. Like I, I'm, I'm on the optimistic side. The optimistic side is kind of an inflationary soft landing, which is kind of my base case. But I, I still have a lot of respect for I don't know the future, right? It could be that the economy falls and then we'd have kind of a, a weird recession, right? A recession where prices keep going up, wages keep going up, the unemployment rate remains at like 4%. Uh, and that's, in some ways, that's what we had in the 70s. Right, precisely. Yeah. And this is where, where, when that labor cost circle starts to roll, it is extremely hard to attenuate which then brings us back to the Fed's focus yes. on that yes. as a particular item that, you know, lagging or otherwise, they're familiar with that cycle. But that, that means you got you got to like slaughter the economy so much more to to 
to squeeze that inflation out, right? That, that, that means that to go, to go back to 2%, you have to create a depression. Uh, and I don't think the Fed wants anyone in their right mind who want to do that. I, you know, I, there's this concept for economies called R-star, you know, the natural level of interest rate, which, you know, no one can observe, but every PhD can write their thesis on and get a job at the Fed for that. Uh, you know, good for them. Uh, I would focus on I-star, the natural level of inflation. And I believe this, this I-star is not constant and, and we're trying to box it with a 2% rule. And it was easy for us to do it because we had a structural disinflation for four years. So if anything, we struggled to get to 2%, right? There's a story of, of yeah. Europe and Japan, right? Uh, because we had this tailwind of globalization, of China, of currency manipulation in East Asia, of Mexican workers going into the US, of global savings glut, federal democracy. I mean, I can go down the list. That, so that made your I star, if you will, fell from the late 70s when it was very high because we had the boomers during the house of formation. Um, then it just fell from 1981 to 2018. And, you know, yeah, 2% was open. Now I think your I star is higher. It's 4 or 5%. And sure, you can, you know, it's kind of, I don't know if you ever diet, like you, your body has a natural weight, right? I, I know for me, if I, if I go under 85 kilos, I... <laughs> It wants to get back there. You know, there's nothing I can do. That, that, yeah. I think that's going to be the same thing with inflation. Uh, so maybe we'll attempt to go down to 2%, but then we'll realize that, that the cost of doing so, uh, and again, from a policy standpoint, is losing a degree of freedom. Like, why can't we use the price level as a variable of adjustment? I mean, the price level is a way that, it, to me, it's a political decision. Like, a a certain price level implies some political choices uh, between debtors and, and, and creditors, between the young and the old, between the working and the non-working. And the, what's right at a given time may not be right the next time. There are periods where you could justify a higher level of inflation. Uh, if you have, for example, a young generation that's been, uh, for example, after a war, right? You, you send all your young men to die for, for the dreams of, of the, the dreams of glory of old men, which is what wars usually are. After that, you know, you usually have higher inflation because high inflation is, is friendly to the young because the young own, don't own assets, right? Inflation destroys the value of assets, so it makes assets relatively cheaper and the way, so you may want to rebalance. I would view COVID as one of these events where we basically sacrifice the youth. You're like, okay, sorry, you're gonna lose two years of your life so that we reduce the death in, in nursing homes. Uh, and now the pandemic is swinging the other way. And again, it is a, it is a good thing. Like a, a smart policy should be, well, what was right then is no longer right now. You're so right, Vincent. I think, you know, a light bulb just went off in my head. Why would, you know, sort of 2% inflation from a, from a like a monetary sturdiness policy, like money is real and it has value or it stores value, but we're going to degrade the value just a little bit over time. And we want to keep the confidence in the money as a store of value, but what we need to have this sort of dilutionary effect. But then you've got this layer on top of that, which is, well, what's the global economy like? Where are sources of labor? Where can we develop sources of labor and sources of opportunity? And we've been in a Goldilocks period prior to whatever the last year or two, where everything sort of went the direction of very low inflation, actually, you know, technological in, in, uh, innovation, productivity, um, as you talked about the global workforce, the, the beauty of the global supply chain. 
we are in a very different set of circumstances now, very different market participants, their age, their demographics. So why wouldn't we think about this inflationary uh, target as being non-stationary? Why, why should it be 2% through 100 years or 50 years? Why shouldn't there be some level of understanding of the global economic dynamics that are at play in order to understand what the you know, the I star should be, if you will, or the that inflationary rate in order to accommodate the current global economic situation. I think that's a that's a very significant insight. Now you have to balance that off, obviously, against the confidence in money and and as a store of value and those types of things. It's it's a really interesting um uh point you make. Yeah, I mean if, if you look at the uh, the global distrib- the distribution of growth versus inflation um, what you'll see is, okay, real growth is bad when you have deflation, uh, and it's bad when you have inflation above 10%. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you uh, no, it's an end. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's nothing special about 2%. It's anything in the U.S. Growth on average has been faster when you had 3 4% inflation rate. Uh, and I think that's something that most emerging market central banks know, that's why you see, you know, most emerging markets and whole bank inflation targets around four or five percent because they know that they're kind of poorer and they need to play catch up. And as they play catch up, uh, wages in the non-tradable sector are going to tradable first, and the non-tradable is going to increase, and, and that's the, the policy effect is the economic term for that. Uh, and and that's okay. Like during the high growth period, the Trente Glorieuse in France, we 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 had five percent inflation. Uh, all of Europe had it. Uh, you can make the case that. Inflation is a lubricant for growth in some ways. Uh, it, 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 to me, it's always easier to adjust the, the price than it is the quantity. Uh, so, and I think that's going to be the. the I think the, big, the thing that tends to break another... things as a Latin American, I can tell you that what every country has different levels of inflation. Three uh, percent consistently, five percent consistently. Argentina, twenty percent consistently. What really kills you is the change, the rate of change. Yeah. Yeah. Aggressive rates of changes will create chaos, right? We saw it this year. Yeah. We saw that aggressive rate of change of inflation numbers and therefore rates of interest lead to, in this case, bonds and equities going down together, right? But if you have a, a steady state of 5%, you're right. I think we, I've seen it in my lifetime. But Chile, Chile is People a great adjust. example. Yeah. Exactly. Chile, everything is, is inflation adjusted and it's been 3 4% for a long time and that's fine. You know, and, and then to me, the, the good thing is, is I was, last time you had me on the podcast, I was a bit worried about things going out of control and where we talked about, yeah, the, the but that that option is out now. You know, we, we're slowing going down to, to four or five percent. Uh, in a way, this was, this was lucky, right? It could have gone the other way. It could have, you know, uh, if China had reopened and oil prices had kept going to 200 and whatever, we could have had a situation like, like that that Argentina had had, but Luckily, the, the dollar was very strong. We had this kind of lucky alignment of the stars that, uh, honestly, well, it, it's the best case scenario where we are today. It may not feel like it, but uh, at the end of the day, what we've had is a negative shock, right? So some, something's got to give. And it's a, I, it feels like the best case scenario now, Vincent, but I got to tell you, I'm terrified of the other side, right? So, so I mean, it feels, if indeed they, they've done it and we're going to five and it's a soft landing, fucking brilliant. 
I'm just really worried that this is kind of the eye in the middle of the storm, personally, right? As you, what's, what if, you know, we've tightened too much and then we have to inflate again and that, and the rates of change that we experience in the first three to four months of the year happen a few more times, it, it breaks stuff, right? It certainly has the, the, um, the likelihood of breaking stuff. So I'm not, well, I'm not I, fully bought into the, uh, we've done it. I'm not ready to put my I, I think Rob, that, flag up. That, that also plays into the inflation volatility comment that you right. made earlier. Right now, asset prices are largely still reflecting a period that we had from sort of early 1990 uh, to 2021, call it, where, you know, inflation volatility was significantly lower, allowing asset prices to be more stable in their earnings, thus you not having to discount back so much because you had the confidence in that. And and now I think we will have more inflation volatility, more sort of similar to what we had from 1990 and before, where you know it was sort of two to three times higher just in the volatility around inflation and its expectations and its changing um, sort of manifestations in those changing. And, and I don't think asset prices really reflect that, certainly not equity asset prices, maybe bond asset, bond the bond complex maybe reflects it more but uh, Vincent, you're, you're tilting your head, but yeah, t- please elaborate for me. Cause if I'm wrong in that sort of assertion, which is a very loose one for me, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I, the, the reason I was tilted is I, I think the bond market uh, also priced that environment of stable growth, steady, but steady growth. doesn't care about the level, right? As long as the asset price is like stability, that doesn't really matter, you know, Okay, give me bad, give me good, but just give me stable. Uh, and and in the bond market, you know, you've seen that the term premium being squeezed out over the past four years uh, as a result of, of low economic volatility. Right, that was a great moderation. Uh, and then after that, it was forward guidance. You know, oh wow, the Fed is going to tell me what it's going to do. Well, why should I be paid for holding long term when when you know like uh, I have a dot plot? I, that, that plot. <laughs> um, and then QE, of course, or yield curve control. So. We squeezed out the term. So it, I think what I get from, from, from Rodrigo and to your point is, is that needs to come back in some way, right? You need to, to work a, a term premium back into the curve. And the conclusion for me would be, you know, curve steepening trades as, as a hedge for, for that. Like I think the, the biggest rate, you know, in 2022, all of it was about pricing 500 basis points of tightening in the front, right? That was the big, that's, that's what drove the stock market down the bond line. The story for 2022 will be on the long end. Uh, we have this historically inverted yield curve, like 80 basis points. I think it makes a lot of sense for to go into 2023 with a yield curve, which, by the way, is something that will work in the both scenarios, both the Mike Green and the, yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah. want I'm not putting myself on the par with Mike Green and Greg Johnson, okay? These people are a lot more accomplished than I am, but the Vincent and the, the Greg Johnson, the, if we have the migraine Greg, um, Greg Jensen Bridgewater scenario, what you'll see are the Fed has made a horrible mistake and they're going to get back to zero or even negative, and you'll get you, you kind of bullish Kittner, like kind of what we had after after the internet bubble, right? Where uh, you know the, the front end falls from five to one percent. Uh, if we had my scenario, uh, we have the bearish Kittner where the front end stays at 5%, but the long end moves back to 5 and maybe even above as we price it. Yeah, so so it's interesting because it's, uh, 
the the big fear and the big confusion this year has been for many allocators, especially advisors and investors, is unprecedented correlation between equities and bonds, right? And and now it's funny because by the way, no, no, yeah, no, oh, totally, a hundred percent, just it's what they've ever experienced in their lifetime, right? Yeah, which is very different than understanding history and and making sure you 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 understand the relationship between those two. The, what, what's interesting now is that they've internalized it and they're like, well, equities and bonds move together. Whereas I think the likely future is going to be equities and bonds acting more non-correlated than ever in the next you know, six to 12 months and, and back to normal, right? If we do see any sort of uh, steepening, any sort of rate of change to the downside of, uh, of rates, especially if, uh, if we find that Regardless how strong the economy is, if we see a multiple compression and the equity markets going down, you might see bond markets taking the opposite side and providing some protection again. So those are kind of an interesting observation. The question. Well, I, I think those are. Commodity. It's a secular difference with a cyclical sort of yeah, secular sure. difference yeah. is is one of the opposite direction, and there will be cyclical reverberations yes. that are much like the past, like the previous sort of thirty years, forty years, if you will. One thing I'll add to that is I also we built the capital markets around the notion that you know stocks and bonds, especially treasuries, are negatively correlated, and we have entire strategies that just do that, right? With parity or even a target date fund, right? If my, you know, if, 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 if my stocks underperform my bonds, I'm going to buy, I'm going to, I'm going to sell my bonds, buy, buy, buy stocks. So we built in some negative correlation from flows in the system. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's not. Um, because at this level of inflation, you should see stocks and bonds have a 50% correlation. Historically, that, that's what it's been. It's closer to like 7 8%. And I think that's, that's in large part because you still have this, this automated uh, you know, rebalancing from one asset into the other that will keep the old regime, even though it has outlasted its, its economic purpose. Interesting. Very good. Very interesting. Yeah, there, there's the other part too, the... the um, you know, with higher rates, you also have a higher discount rate on all the pension liabilities. Right. So those actually drop dramatically in funding of, of corporations where they're funding sort of defined benefit type plans, right. which is another interesting benefit. Now, we don't we don't have as many defined benefit plans as we used to. Um, and, and they're predominant in different uh, geographical regions. But, you know, it, it, trying to, to plan or to provide for someone's retirement at an average duration at zero or 0.5% rates is extremely expensive versus 5% as an example. And, and, and brings me back to my point that rate hikes are not as nasty. Well, I mean, they change the ordering of cash flow. They change the distribution of cash flow over time, but like there is no, they change a relative price level, but they don't necessarily make you know, I think we overestimate the extent to which rate cuts are economically stimulative, and we've certainly seen that. I mean, you know, if rate cuts work, like, you know, Japan and Switzerland would be, you know, I guess 15% GDP growth in the past decade, and they have not, right? And similarly, we kind of overestimate the extent to which rate hikes slow economic activity. Uh, you know, they just, to me, rates just, Set the relative value of financial assets versus real assets. Uh, they change the duration and profile. They you know benefit people who are short duration, hurt people who are long duration. 
but it's all transfers. There is no wealth being created or destroyed by playing with the level of interest rate. It, it sort of reallocates who the potential beneficiaries are. Yes. Yes. And in the case of pension funds, again, we kind of go back to my idea that we were on a road to nowhere, right? I mean, you look at it, you know, the, the European pension fund sector, I mean, you know, the, what is the alternative? It's like, yeah, be, being your, your, your average German pension fund, which is 80% invested in stuff that yields negative. I mean, <laughs> how long can we buy negative yielding bond and hope that further rate cuts will they, you know, will yields going to get more negative so that some idiot is going to pay an even higher price for this bond that kills, destroys wealth over time. I mean, there was no, you need the system to reset if, if people are going to retire. And, and sure, there is, there's going to be a loss, right? I mean, that's what we saw in the UK. Like, uh, whoever's holding the bag of all these negative yielding bonds that they repriced is, is going to take the hit. For I think at the end of the day, most of these central banks. Uh, so when central banks have an infinite capacity to absorb losses, so the, the name of the game, I think, is kind of what Japan does: is you need to to move all the the shitty, crappy, uh, overvalued, negative yielding bonds on the central bank's balance sheet uh, as as you do this process. And that that what? shares the pain across the geographic global nature of that yeah that country that economic unit which is a country and uh interesting and it bears that it bears that uh that i suppose bears those losses and and can spread them out over a longer period of time i mean look this is that we can have an hour-long conversation about nominal versus real and what all that means when you're actually in a disinflationary or deflationary environment and rates are negative but but that can take an hour and i still haven't disentangled it myself um just just out of, I want to, based on history, and I haven't done enough work on this yet, is what tends to happen, because I, I, I think I have a view on the equity markets, a view on the bond markets. The question is, what happens to commodities from here? All right. So certainly if we peaked inflation, there's going to be a period of adjustment. Um, but once we hit that constant state 5%, what does that mean for, historically, what, I don't know if you know this answer, Vince, but what does that meant for commodity prices over time uh, in, in a steady state inflationary environment? Um, so, I mean, you can go down like the whole, but let me just focus on all else equal. How is 4.5 different from two? I think it reduces, it reduces the duration of uh, Investment like it, that, right? That that's that's what inflation does, right? It means that all else equal, I want my, I want, I want to consume now more so than than. So I think that's commodity bullish because commodities have zero duration, right? So it revalues. I think higher level of inflation, all else equal, increase the relative value of zero duration assets versus long duration assets like like houses, like bonds, like like stocks. Uh, so I. Structurally, I think it's, it's commodity bullish. And the, the second part that's commodity bullish is, is then if you are in a high, relatively high inflation environment, your main risk is that an inflation gets higher, right? So that, that's that's what you, you lose sleep over. And the way you hedge that is, is by having commodities. So there's a, almost a portfolio demand for, for commodities that did not exist in a world where inflation was contained and when you, your hedge was long-term treasuries. Uh, 
So to me, both of that points to to higher, which is generally the experience, right? When you have high inflation, commodity prices are higher. There's a chicken and egg part to this, I, I understand, but uh, I think you can, yeah, even without saying a tautology, you can find arguments that, that support uh, high yeah. commodity prices. Look, this is, I always love having these conversations, Vincent. I mean, we are not, none of what we do say here actually has anything to do with our systematic strategies. This is why I love the intellectual discussion. Timing is always tough. So, you know, the risk parity has that commodity bond and uh, an equity component. They balance each other off. And then you have the systematic uh, macro that can make the best short term. So I'm, I'm so glad that I have that because it's uh, it's a treacherous world out there. And there's so many things that could play out in the next 18 months, but uh, it certainly helps frame how important it is to have a diversified portfolio that includes these hedges, right? Whether we're talking about a sophisticated steepener or adding commodities to your portfolio right. or adding some active strategies to your portfolio. I mean, when we met, um, it's almost year ago maybe yeah. No, uh, yeah no maybe less than a year we were talking about spring. Uh, yeah we we're talking about peru as a great hedge yeah. and peru was up 20 percent this in the in the first three months of the year which and is you don't even have a president do you have a president though how, how is that going <laughs> you are the one by the way i want to give you kudos to this i remember in our conversation talking about how i'm like i'm sick and tired about president uh, that, uh, that we're constantly turning over our presidents and and it's got to be bad for investing in Peru. And you said to me something that was very interesting, which was, no, 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 Peru's got a very strong constitution. And it's built in such a way that it doesn't matter how stupid your president is. The the constitution protects the companies enough and the people there enough that you're they, they, like, they can't screw it up. And like, like Donald Trump couldn't screw up the U.S., probably due to the fact that the U.S. wrote the Peruvian constitution with Fujimori in, in, the late, in the early 90s, right? And that's exactly what happened in a single day. For those who haven't heard, in a single day, um, you know, Fujimori in 1990 dissolved the government because our constitution allowed for that, and it was just a disaster, and it happened. He got a new constitution with the help of the United States, rebuilt the economy, and since then it's grown at 7% a year. Um, this guy, this new president doesn't understand how the how the constitution is built or what his who and what their allies were i don't know where he got this idea of trying to dissolve the constitution write a new constitution dissolve the congress and write a new constitution that happened and within a few hours the the congress got together they threw him out and because that what he did was seen as a mutinous action he got arrested and is now in jail i mean i think you should he should, he should run for, he should run the UK now. <laughs> There's a job opening there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, but that was, look, there's opportunities now, but I, I think the, the takeaway I want people to have from this, these conversations are that there are opportunities and risks out there that just, it's just not, uh, in my view anyway, a, a traditional buy and hold 60-40. We've seen the pain of that. I hope people recognize that, you know, there's there you can hedge in many ways. You can look out there and actually pay, take some active views, um, whether systematic or otherwise. Um, you know, I, I think the Peru, uh, the Peru bet, which is the ETF is out there. that You can get direct access. It was great. It was like it was up. It was down. It's kind of flat for the year. Pretty much what you would have expected in a year like this. So um, really appreciate your insights here, Vince. And um, yeah, we just need to. Be more open-minded than ever. Certainly, more than we have in the last ten years as, as broad investors. Yeah. Awesome. Right. 
Well, thanks. Oh, guys before for before we go, just uh, oh yeah, Vincent, where all your like, what are your where can people find you? I know we we uh, provided your your title that you're um, the, the director of Global Mackle Strategy at Stonex, and uh, but you also have a Twitter page and LinkedIn page, or wh- where else can people find you and and tune in? Yeah, no, Twitter is, is really the the best place. Uh, Vincent Deliard, my first name and my last name. Uh, you know, great place for conversation. Uh, if you look at my pin tweet, there's a link uh, so that people can sign up for, for a free trial of work. Uh, DMs also work. Uh, I'm right now I'm speaking at the Stonex conference day, so I, I want to apologize for uh, the background, which is a, a miserable hotel room in, in by Central Park, which I paid close to a thousand dollars because inflation is just crazy. Uh, and I'm doing this on my phone. That's you know, usually I'm more professional than that. Uh, but uh, yeah, Stonex is a big uh, global financial service firm, uh, very active in, in commodities, uh, currency. Uh, so that's another way is you can just trade with us. And I mean, if you're always trading with us, ask your rep to uh, uh, to get added to my distribution list. And if not, uh, check us out. We are um, we're growing. Um, we got great stuff. So yeah. fantastic. And awesome, thank you Vince. again. Very entertaining as usual. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.